0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. It's a misty morning on a farm in KwaZulu-Natal. The darkness of night has just started to fade. when boots crunch into the ground. Twelve policemen approach a farmhouse. They think that they're doing the hunting, but in reality, they are the hunted. As shots ring out, South Africa's first spree killer begins his rampage, and his actions will scar the community for decades to come. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 47, The Crimes of Stefana Swart. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our newest Patreon supporter, Len Cooper-Makoba. Thank you so much for your support. It is hugely appreciated. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. Today's episode takes us back in time to 1927 and the case of South Africa's first recorded spree killer. I enjoy looking at the older cases occasionally because sometimes it helps to see how far we've come in investigative techniques and forensic psychology. Often, though, these cases show how little has changed, despite the passage of almost a century. We like to think that it's only modern society that has to contend with horrific and unnecessary violence, but it's cases like this one that indicates that people capable of such crimes have always walked among us. My main source for today's episode is a book by Benjamin Bennett, South Africa's first true crime writer. Bennett was a journalist who worked at the Cape Argus from 1925 to 1975. He wrote prolifically, and I want to thank listener Zoe Merchant for donating three of his books to the show. Reading these books is like being transported back in time and I really appreciate these additions to my true crime collection. Thank you so much, Zoe. The Bennett book that I used for this case is called The Clues Condemn. I also used a chapter from Rob Marsh's book, African Crime Mysteries. So let's get into episode 47, The Crimes of Stefanus Swart. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. There is very little information available about the early life of Stefana Swat. Most sources first pick up his story in 1902, when he married Anna DeVette. Swat's birth date is listed in most places as 1890. This cannot be correct, though, as I found a marriage certificate for him and Anna, and it's indeed dated 1902. This would have made him 12 when he married her, if that birth date is correct and he was clearly not 12 in their wedding photo. This is one of the interesting things about researching cases that are this old. Sources differ in the information, and it's very difficult to determine who's actually correct. The story goes that Stephanus married Anna, who was a widow, because she was wealthy. Her late husband had left her a farm near Potter's Hill, in what is now KwaZulu-Natal, and when she married Stephanus, he took over the running of the farm. If you look at their wedding photo, which I'll publish on our social media, it seems pretty clear to me that this was a marriage of convenience. People married for very different reasons in the early 1900s than they do today, and for Anna, Getting married again would have provided her with assistance running her farm and a sense of security. We don't know what Stephanus was doing before he married Anna, but the marriage would no doubt have provided him with land and assets that he didn't have, and a female around the house to tend to his needs. This would not be a marriage of kindness and love, though and although there is no record of the details of their 25-year marriage, there seems little doubt that it was unhappy and very likely abusive. Anna had a daughter from her previous marriage called Fanny. The girl would likely have been very young when her mother married Swart. But by the time we pick up their story, she's married to a Mr Knight and has children of her own. Stefanus Swart was not well-liked in his community. He was tall and powerfully built. He was described as moody, showed little concern for others, and had a desperate need for control. Swart was not very well-educated, but he had an innate talent for farming and working with animals. He valued his farm animals more highly than any human being although most would say that this had less to do with his love of animals, and more to do with the fact that he could control the animals, where he struggled to control people, to the extent that he was satisfied. Swat had always had a victim mentality, and believed that the world was out to get him. I think we all know people like this to a certain extent, But for most, it doesn't translate into the type of criminal behaviour that Swat would end up engaging in. For him, a civil case he was involved in would morph that victim mentality into something far more sinister. I don't have an exact date for when this civil case was brought against him, nor the details of what the claim was. But when this case did not end in his favour he became convinced that the judge had specifically acted against him for personal reasons. Soon after this, he assaulted a relative, and after his stepdaughter, Fanny Knight, and her farm manager, Mr Roots, testified against him, he was found guilty and sent to jail for 18 months. This prison stint had Swart's anger at this perceived injustice against him, simmering this was made worse when he was informed that his wife intended to divorce him and she filed for a legal separation while he was still in jail although several attempts were made at reconciliation in early 1927 Annie would flee the farm and hide from Swart at the home of friends in the wake of a new and extremely disturbing allegation made against the man Some sources just say that Swart was accused of a very serious sexual offence. Others say that this offence was incest. Now, because we don't know much about Swart's background, it's difficult to say which family member Swart may have committed incest with. What we do know is that simultaneously, Swart was known to be having an affair with a younger woman, this woman was never identified, but in order for this relationship to be deemed incestuous, it would have to have been either a sister, a daughter, or a half-daughter, or any other first-line blood relation. In South Africa, it is not illegal to have sex with a first cousin. When this charge was brought against SWAT, Both his wife and his own farm manager, a Mr. Fisser, were deemed to be witnesses to the act. Now, this opens up a whole other kettle of rotten fish, because it makes me believe that both of them had witnessed the act of incest, or something that would prove the act of incest had occurred. After 25 years of abuse and strange behaviour from her husband, Annie Swartz had clearly had enough and she was ready to send him to jail for a long time. Swat, though, was having none of it, and threatened Annie with her life if she testified against him. Terrified, the woman did her best to convince Swat that she wouldn't testify against him, even going as far as to move to Porterstrom, 600 kilometres from Potter's Hill, so that police could not bring her back for the trial. Mr Fisser, the farm manager, also offered to flee the province in order to avoid testifying. He went to the Cape. Both parties, though, made it clear to police, without Swart's knowledge, that the minute they needed to testify, they would return to do so. They were only leaving to avoid Swart's anger. Swart was made to pay £500 for bail on the charge, which is about 40,000 rand in today's money. At first, he struggled to come up with the money, and some suggested that he sell off his farm animals to raise the cash. Swart was offended by the idea, believing that the animals would suffer at the hands of anyone else but him. He was eventually able to round up the cash for his bail on the incest charge, And while you'd think that he would go home to his farm and and keep his head down until his trial, Stefano Swart was not prepared to do that. Just days after being released on bail, on the 3rd of May 1927, Swart drove over to a neighbouring farm, and for reasons no one could explain, fired a shot in the direction of the farm owner. The man opened a case of attempted murder against Swart. It seems likely that this escalation was caused, possibly by some form of underlying mental illness, combined with the stress of all of his legal issues. Besides the incest charge, Swart had also been fined for not having a licence on his vehicle. When he was made aware that a charge had been made against him for trying to shoot his neighbour, and that the police intended to come out and arrest him, Swart made a fateful decision that would impact the lives of countless others. He decided that he was not going back to jail, and if police were going to come for him, he was going to take out as many as he could before using the last bullet for himself. On the 4th of May, Stephanus Swart called his attorney, Mr Marsdorp, to his house, informing him that he wished to get his affairs in order. The man arrived accompanied by his driver and found Swat to be in the depths of a mental and physical crisis. He looked gaunt and had dark rings under his eyes. There was no food on the farm and Swat said he hadn't eaten in days and hadn't slept for more than an hour in a week. His mania had not been saved just for himself, he'd worked his labourers to the point of exhaustion too and the men stood scattered around the land, attempting to carry out their duties while their legs gave way beneath them. The men were clearly living in fear for their lives, and dared not disobey the manic, wild-eyed Swart. Marsdorp's driver waited outside while the attorney was locked away in the house with Swart. The attorney would sit with his client's until 11pm that night, drafting a statement from the man about his final wishes. When Marsdorp received the request from Swart to attend the farm, he'd made contact with the policeman in charge of the attempted murder case, Captain Gerald Ashman. Marsdorp had informed Ashman of his client's request and asked what he should do. Ashman told him that he would be grateful if he could go over to the farm and try to convince Swat to hand himself over, so as the attorney sat taking down his client's statement, he intermittently tried to reason with the man and convince him that it would be far better to hand himself over and face the case rather than create a standoff situation between him and the police at one point. Swart agreed to meet with Ashman. He said he would do so only if it was the policeman on his own, accompanied by his attorney. He warned that if anyone approached his farm after 6pm, they would be killed on sight. Marsdorp's driver was given a note to this effect and told to deliver it to Captain Ashman while the attorney continued taking down Swart's statement. Before the driver could leave, though, Swart pulled him aside and gave him 40 pounds. He told him to stop in at the undertaker on his way back and order a coffin. Confused but not willing to quibble with Swart, the driver did as he was told. The undertaker thought that Swart was joking, though. Within 24 hours he would be supplying many more coffins to the local community. The statement that Marsdorp eventually took from Swart was almost 30 pages long. It detailed his plan to kill as many of his enemies as he could and then commit suicide. One part of the statement read, I have arranged all my affairs with my attorney. I now give blood for blood. I will shoot them down till I have one cartridge left, and that will be mine. But alive you will never get me. With my corpse you can do what you please. Burn it, mutilate it, and treat it in such a manner as you think fit. You best revenge yourselves. I wish this statement to be published after my death in all the prominent newspapers in the Union, and I desire a copy to be forwarded to the Prime Minister, General Herzog. End quote. We'll talk more about the nature of spree and mass murderers later, but when I read this, one word came to mind. Manifesto. This document was not Swartz's last will and testament. It was a manifesto, in the same way as other spree killers that came after him would prepare long rambling documents about their beliefs, and the perceived inequities that had been wrought upon them. In many cases, these killers would arrange for copies to be sent to newspapers and heads of countries they live in, so that they can finally be heard in a way they believed they hadn't been in life. Swart told Marsdorp during this session that he knew that his wife had lied to him and that she intended to testify against him in the incest trial. He'd been told that she'd returned from Pachterstrom and was living in Newcastle. He'd gone looking for her the previous day, but was unable to find her. On his way back to the farm, a thought had struck him. If he were to die, his enemies, as he referred to anyone that would not obey his wishes, would get his vehicle. So ten kilometres from home, he pulled over on the side of the road set his vehicle alight, and then walked the rest of the way back to the farm. It was this kind of incongruous thinking that had Marsdorp realise that there was no reasoning with Swart, and that something very bad was coming to Potter's Hill. After receiving the message and hearing from Marsdorp about how manic Swart was behaving, Captain Ashman felt that for the safety of the public, He had no choice but to arrange an operation to arrest the man, and it had to be as soon as possible. He put together a team of 12 of the best policemen in the area, all excellent marksmen, to match Swat's own prowess with the gun. On the 6th of May 1927, at 4.30am, the group gathered at a hotel in town. Ashman had arranged a slap-up breakfast for the team, and had asked the hotel owner to arrange sandwiches for the men to take with them as well. He had no idea how long it would take to safely capture Stefan Swat in his current state of mind. The hotel owner called Ashman aside and asked him if she should put together some bandages and a first aid kit. Ashman said that he didn't want his men thinking that they were headed into a bloodbath. Perhaps thinking twice, he grabbed the few bandages the woman had on hand and shoved them into his khaki coat. They had brought in two men that knew the farm well. One was a policeman named Sergeant Grove, who was the only authority figure that Swart had ever been friendly with. The man had spent a significant amount of time on Swart's farm and knew it well. The other man that joined the team was Swart's ex farm manager, Mr Fisser, who'd fled to the Cape. On hearing that his ex boss had gone off the deep end, he'd returned to offer what assistance he could. Together the team of policemen and the two men with intimate knowledge of the farm plotted out a plan. They would split into three teams. One would head down Potter's Hill to ensure that all exit points from the farm were covered. Another team would approach the farmhouse, and the third would stay at the main road entrance to the farm at a trading store situated there. Before Captain Ashman led his team to their vehicles, he pulled the hotel owner aside He told her that he'd left a satchel with his personal papers in his room. If something happened to him, she should give the papers to his son. Captain Ashman knew exactly how dangerous the mission was that he was heading into. The drive to the farm was about an hour and a half. A thick mist had settled over the land when the group arrived just outside the farm. They would walk the rest of the way so as not to lose the element of surprise. The joke was on them, though, as they'd no sooner alighted their vehicles when they heard the sound of hoofbeats coming down towards them. The hotel owner had been sworn to silence, and no one knows how SWAT found out about the approaching police, but he'd sent one of his farm workers to meet the men with the message. SWAT warned them through his worker that if they entered the property, he would arm himself and shoot them. Captain Ashman's decision to continue on that day would be questioned for years to come. The men could barely see in front of them due to the thick mist. He could have turned around at that point, come back when visibility was better, but he seemed to instinctively know that the fire burning inside of Swart was about to spread, and if they, as the police, didn't make an attempt to stop him, the public at large would be at risk. Stefano Swart was not going to stop. He would have to be stopped. Ashman had the worker dismount and tied the horse to the fence. He instructed him to wait on the outskirts of the farm for his own safety and led his men in. Around 7 a.m., the teams moved into position. Sergeant Annas van Vaak manned the entrance to the farm, while the rest of the men, the youngest just 23, split into two groups and moved towards the farmhouse and covered the bottom of the hill. What they didn't know was that Stefano Swart was not in his farmhouse. He knew he'd be a sitting duck there, and would be easily overwhelmed by twelve men. Instead, he took advantage of the fact that he knew the land far better than anyone there. Missed or not, he didn't need to see where he was going. So he moved from place to place around the farm until he heard the men approaching, and then he took cover. The downhill group was the first to spot him, and they immediately realised that he had been even smarter than they thought possible. Swat had worn a jacket in the same khaki colour as the police were wearing. By doing this, they could never be sure whether they were firing at their own people or at him. When the khaki-clad Swat moved in front of a group containing a constable Fucht, The policeman shouted at him to stop and put his hands up. Swart did not obey. Instead, a gunshot cracked through the air, striking Fucht in the chest. The policeman dragged himself along the ground until he reached the point where Ashman was posted. The captain sent Fucht back to the vehicles so that he could be taken for treatment. He gave the man a note to take with him that read, Carefully take cover and shoot SWAT on sight. Fucht wounded with shotgun and gone to hospital have sent for more men. Try to save yourselves and do not expose as SWAT is now desperate. Up until this point, Ashman's orders had been to take the man alive. Now Swart had proven that he had no intention of going peacefully and he had no problem killing policemen. As this was happening, another group of men was approaching the farmhouse. They had no idea that Swart was not in the house. As they moved slowly forward, Swart circled up behind them and waited until he could get close enough. The two constables, Mitchell and Crossman, were taken down almost immediately. Swart then walked up to their bodies and released his fury in a needless hail of gunfire. The gunshots echoed over the misty land, drawing the attention of another group consisting of two policemen, Moorcroft and Payne, and the ex-farm manager. Visser. This group was also closing in on the farmhouse at that time, and when Fisser heard the gunshots, he was able to identify it as smart weapon. They immediately knew that the man was not in the house and quickly ran toward it to take cover at the boundary wall. As they did so, Fisser heard Swart calling out to one of his farm workers. Then, moments later, the tall figure appeared through the mist. They shouted at him to put his hands up, but he ducked behind the stable building instead. The men believed that Swart was in the stable, retrieving a horse so that he could flee so they all moved to cover the farm exits to thwart his escape. This was when they came across the mangled bodies of Mitchell and Crossman. Swart was making his way off the farm, but not on horseback. He began to slowly creep back to the main road and came across Sergeant Grove, his friend. Swart clearly proved, though, that friendship meant nothing to him anymore when he fired a bullet into Grove's chest. The man dragged himself a few metres before succumbing to his injury. Swat continued on to the main road and surprised Ashman and Van Vake at the entrance. Van Vake's body was found at the trading store and Ashman's was found halfway across the road. He seemed to have been fleeing when he was gunned down. Swart was armed with an automatic pistol and 200 rounds, and also stole Ashman's service gun, which had 30 rounds. He was nowhere near finished. The horse that Ashman had tethered to the fence was still there, and Swart mounted it and rode away from the farm. Around 8am that morning, he arrived at the farm of a neighbour. The neighbour had never been a great fan of Swart's, but he hadn't had any run-ins with him. He didn't know the man that rode up that day, though, he says. Swart was super-energised, smiling and friendly. He said that he was like a different man. Swat had his gun in his hand, and the neighbour eyed it wearily, well aware of Swat's reputation. He noticed this and told the man that he didn't need to be afraid. There had been a war on his farm, and five policemen were dead. He sipped a cup of coffee the neighbour had offered and continued to tell him that he was heading out to find the rest of the people that had wronged him, and he would take down as many as he could, until he found himself in a corner, and then he'd kill himself. The neighbour was gobsmacked, and could not have been happier when Swart finished his coffee, mounted his horse and headed off in the direction of nearby charlestown where he believed his wife was hiding as soon as Swart headed out the neighbor also mounted his horse and started to ride in the opposite direction toward mount pleasant to warn the police there of Swart's intentions it's alleged that the neighbor was close to the police station when one of Swart's farm workers came up behind him and delivered a message from Swart. If the man alerted the police, as soon as he finished killing his wife, he would come back for him. I don't really know how accurate all of these instances are where Swart somehow knows things that are happening. It seems a little far-fetched to me, almost like the legend of the man has made him into this omniscient being that knows all. On the other hand, these instances were detailed in Bennett's book and he was working for the Cape Argus at the time. Regardless of the warning, the neighbour continued on to Mount Pleasant and warned police there of Stephanus Swart's rampage. In the meantime, Swart was well on his way to Charlestown to find his wife when a horrible coincidence caused him to happen upon... Two of the people he wanted to kill the most, Fanny Knight and her farm manager, Mr. Roots, had been in town the previous night. The hotel owner, despite being sworn to silence, had warned Mrs. Knight that morning that she should wait to return home, as police were conducting an operation to take Swart down. The hotel owner was also well aware that Knight and Ruets had testified against Swart in his assault trial and may be in danger if they came across him. Fanny Knight weighed up her options and decided that she would be safe enough. Sadly, as the pair trundled down the dusty roads back toward their farm, they came across Swart galloping in the opposite direction. He flagged them down, and Mr Ruitz slowed the vehicle to a stop. Without a word, Swart walked up to Fanny and shot her several times. Her body tumbled from the car. Mr Ruitz's body was found in front of the vehicle. He seemed to have been getting ready to fight Swart off when he was shot. Fanny Knight's children and husband, who she'd been so eager to get home to, would later build a memorial to her and their fallen farm manager on the spot where the vehicle had pulled over. The large, ornate memorial reads, This memorial is erected in memory of Fanny Knight, nee Eckstein, and G. Ruitz, who were shot by S. Swart on the 6th of May 1927 while he had escaped from the police at Potter's Hill leaving his victims laying on the dusty road, Swart rode on. By this time his horse was exhausted, and as he galloped towards the house at which he believed his wife was hiding, witnesses would remark how he had whipped the horse to go faster, despite the animal having nothing left in it to give. The animal lover Swart was no more, it seemed. Annie Swart had lived in a few different places since she'd fled her home in fear for her life. She didn't stay in one place for very long, fearing that Swart would learn the details of her location. At this time, she was living with a family called the Van Fieren's. As Swart galloped up to the house, Annie was sitting on the porch with 17-year-old Gertrude Van Fieren and her brother Lucas. The minute she saw that it was her husband... She whispered to the children to run Gertrude fled taking her sister who was inside the house with her They would hide in a makeshift police station on the next farm for hours Lucas however could not run He was born with disability and used crutches to get around He and Annie Swart made it into the house and locked the door as Swart's exhausted horse made it to the porch Annie fled into one of the bedrooms, and Lucas tried to hide behind a chair in the lounge. He would later recount how Swart had not immediately entered the house. Instead, he'd walked around the outside, peering into the windows. Eventually, he broke down the front door, and found Lucas cowering in the lounge. He demanded to know where his wife was, and the boy said he didn't know, but she was somewhere in the house. SWAT found Annie within seconds, and Lucas said that he heard talking, and then two gunshots. Annie died almost immediately, as her husband fired one shot into her heart and one into her head. Lucas fled the house as quickly as he could, fearing that SWAT was coming for him next. He collapsed into a nearby millie field and did his best to stay hidden from view. As Smart headed back out to the road to continue on with his murderous rampage, it became clear that his horse would go no further. He tied the animal to a fence and abandoned it there, walking the rest of the way into town. His plan was to hijack a vehicle, and he stood on the side of the road until the first car trundled past. It contained a female passenger, a male driver, and a three year old child. Swat waved down the vehicle. Whether news had started to spread about a madman on the loose, or it was simply the appearance of the tall, angry looking man that made the driver balk at stopping, the man ignored Swat and continued to drive. Swat fired two shots into the vehicle wounding the man in his leg, and wounding the female passenger as well. The driver still did not stop, though, and Swart remained on foot. His next destination was the farm of the man who'd accused him of attempted murder. The neighbour that had alerted Mount Pleasant Police to Swart's rampage had been successful in his attempts, and a large contingent of local farmers and police were on Swart's heels they arrived in town just in time to discover that Swat was there and already wreaking havoc. They spotted him entering the farm of the man he'd previously tried to shoot and shouted at him to put his hands up. When he failed to comply, a policeman fired three shots in his direction. All three missed, but Swat disappeared into a ditch on the side of the road. Another gunshot echoed through the air. When police approached the ditch, they found Stefano Swart dead by his own hand. He'd used Captain Ashman's gun to shoot himself. The headlines that morning announced to South Africa that it had experienced its first spree killing. Nine killed in shooting tragedy, Natal border sensation, early morning fight with police. During his rampage, Stefanus Swart had managed to take eight lives. His own was the ninth. His victims were Captain Gerald Ashman, Sergeant J.A. Grove, Constable William Crossman, Head Constable William Mitchell, Fanny Knight, G. Ruitz, and his wife, Annie Swart. A spree killer is defined as a person who kills more than one victim in more than one location over a short period of time. This is different from a mass murderer who kills many people in one location. There are, of course, examples of cases where the two types have combined, where, for example, a person may detonate a bomb to kill a large number of people in one location and then go on to kill other individuals in other locations. Both spree killers and mass murderers will often leave behind some form of manifesto, as SWAT did. While motives behind spree killings differ, it's very often caused by the perpetrator's perception that he is being treated unfairly or that by committing his crimes, he'll somehow be setting back some sort of balance or carrying out his own brand of justice. It's also not uncommon for spree killers to suffer from some form of mental illness that may cause audible or visual hallucinations and skew their view of the world. I found the description of Swart's state of mind in Benjamin Bennett's book quite interesting, and I think it tells us a lot about how our understanding of mental illness has changed in the last century. Bennett describes Swart's mental state as sulking. We know that he was generally unemotional and that he was prone to violent outbursts. I guess this idea that Swart was sulking could also come from the victim mentality that he presented with so often. In his book, Benjamin Bennett says, quote, Sulking or moodiness is a dangerous condition, halfway to a disorder. In the adult, sulking is likely to end tragically. End quote. Now, with all due respect to the learned man, I did giggle a bit when I read that. Understanding and care for mental illnesses in the 1920s was rather rudimentary, and I can almost picture someone being hauled off for a lobotomy because they were deemed as being sulky. Probably more frightening, a doctor that Bennett calls a celebrated psychologist actually put a label on Swart's mental illness. He said, quote, The schizophrenic state is essentially a morbidly exaggerated and prolonged state of sulking, and the outbreak of violence to which such people are liable is strictly comparable to running amok in which the sulking of a shy, sensitive, introverted person is apt to terminate. End quote. I am so glad that our research did not end there. Today we know that schizophrenia is in no way an extended state of sulking. We also know that people living with schizophrenia are far more likely to harm themselves than other people. Stefanus Swart did not appear to be suffering from any form of hallucinations. He certainly shifted into manic states quite often. He was highly narcissistic, and had intense delusions of persecution. While he may certainly have presented with certain characteristics of paranoid schizophrenia, I think it may be more likely that there were several personality disorders at play that combined with other issues to create the man he was. I wish that we knew more about Stephanus Swart's history and had a better record of his actions in the time leading up to his crimes. I think that this highlights why it's so important for us to leave far more detailed records of our modern perpetrators for those that will come after us. While Stefanus Swart would go down in history as the first spree killer in our country, he would not be the last. Just four years after Swart's crimes, 22-year-old Cornelius van Heerden mowed down six people and injured five before shooting himself in Bethlehem. In 1954... Pietrus Lombard killed four people and wounded six in Mpumalanga before committing suicide. In 1975, 25-year-old David Protter killed four people and wounded 84 before being arrested. In 1992, Carl Johannes Dalport would kill nine people and wound 19 others before being arrested. His crimes took place just a few kilometres from where SWAT had rampaged. In 2006, Chippa Matieni killed eight people in Gauteng before being run over and killed by police. And the list goes on. In almost all of these cases, the perpetrator appeared to build up to the point of explosion and then be triggered by something rather insignificant. The trail of destruction left by Swart's crimes was extensive. Fanny Knight's young children were left without a mother. Five women lost their husbands, and their children lost their fathers. In that time in history, with there being so few opportunities for women, being widowed was practically a death sentence. The hotel owner would have to carry out Ashman's final wishes and hand over all that was left of the man in the form of documents to his grieving son. The residents of the area would have lived in the aftermath of this man's actions for decades, the story told and retold as a campfire horror story. The madman who lost his mind and went on a rampage. But I think it was really less complex than that. When police searched Swart's farmhouse after his death, they found the walls adorned with multiple portraits of the man. There were no pictures of his wife or his stepdaughter, just him. And I think that that was what ultimately led to this tragedy. For Swart, there was no one else. No other person deserved justice or fair treatment, just him. And when he couldn't get what he wanted, he took it by force. Thank you for listening to episode 47, The Crimes of Stephanus Swart. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight sode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.